Hi there, and welcome to Blogwag. Yeah. <clears throat> I've got this little bit of a habit which is trying to invent new words with the word wag at the end, which originally came from chinwag. But I think I'm gradually pushing this to an extreme which is perhaps a bit ridiculous. But what is Blogwag? Well, um, it's occurred to me for some years that I do a lot of writing, but not an awful lot of people do have the time to sit and read the content I produce. And for a while when I was with RTFM, I experimented with using software to convert my blogs into audio, you know, text to speech. The trouble is, is that that often would sound a little bit like Stephen Hawking on a bad day. Uh, no offense to Stephen Hawking. Um, and a lot of people said, well, can you just not record them uh, with your spoken voice? So here I am uh, doing it. So um, the first episode, if we can call it that, uh, in uh, Blogwag is what is the software-defined data center? Um, it first appeared on my blog on the community's uh, forum, and essentially that's what I'm going to be reading out to you, but I'll probably adjust it a little bit as I get into it rather than doing a sort of flat read of the blog post itself. Um, I was kind of inspired by a, a lady I know called Jane Rimmer, who is one of the leaders at the London VMware user group. Um, I was watching her activity on Twitter and she said, uh, can, can somebody define what this software uh, data center thing is? So I thought I'm going to write a blog post just for Jane. <laughs> um, Jane often reads my stuff and spots my typos. So I often have to turn around very, very quickly, uh, changes and updates to the blog post. So in the end, I actually sent it through to Jane and said, you know, Let's cut to the chase. You can be my proofreader for this particular post that you've inspired. But that's the sort of background. Um, let's get into it. Um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been spending my time working through the launch readiness material that's privately available on the, the VMware MyLearn site. Um, it's part of the process that people called onboarding. Uh, it's a funny kind of word, onboarding. Uh, the first meaning likens the, the company to being this great ocean liner and I'm uh, merely a passenger being brought on board. For me, it's got this other meaning that's a little bit more prevalent that I'm trying to take on board, if you forget the pun, a great deal of information about the company, uh, not just the internal workings, but the, the larger scale vision. And also some of the sort of technical and practical uh, ways that we intend to sort of deliver on it. So um, part of the onboard, onboarding process is being understanding this concept of the software-defined data center. And it's a term that many people have asked to define. So I wanted to use this particular blog wag to outline what the phrase means to me and why I think we've sort of adopted it. Um, so a little bit of background. In the previous decade, I was one amongst many who spearheaded the drive to adopt virtualization. And as a VMware certified instructor, I used to get delegates to log on what was called at that time the virtual data center. It was kind of like a, a remote lab. Um, I liked the term at the time and uh, the data center that we use was often in the US and we we're accessing servers and the network and the storage all remotely. And the students rather liked the VDC and they were impressed by the fact that by the beginning of the week, we'd have nothing, but by the end of the week, we'd built our whole VMware virtual infrastructure environment. Uh, the less said about keyboard repeats and trying to type into ILOs and DRACs across, you know, uh, you know, sort of RDP links and things like that at that time is probably left, left, left unsaid. 
Um, the reason the instructors liked these VDCs is that they were consistent uh, all the time and you could depend on the lab guys to reset the, the VDC properly at the end of each class so there was less setup for us to do. And it was certainly better than having, you know, bellowing noise of actual hardware, servers and switches and a fiber channel sound at the back of the room. I think at the time, few of us, including myself, uh, thought that the abbreviation VDC, the virtual data center, would end up being a term in this thing that we call vCloud Director. Uh, in case you don't know, um, there's two types of uh, VDC or uh, virtual data center in vCloud Director. There's the provider VDC, which offers up the resources, storage, network, and compute, and then a logical organizational VDC that is used as the container that represents the tenants in the cloud that use those resources. Um, I mean, at the time, I remember how impressed my students were with how easy it was to create new VMs, especially once a library of templates had been established. And I guess we would now call those vApps in the context of uh, vCloud Director. Um, somewhere along that five-day course, I would often discuss that if the bottlenecks that we currently have no longer existed in the provisioning of new servers, because it was so easy to create new virtual machines, that this would eventually inevitably expose different bottlenecks elsewhere in the system, be they technical or be about IT process. Uh, I went so far to say that those bottlenecks would most likely to be the process ones, and that the old bottlenecks uh, were disguised and obscured by the subterranean bottlenecks underneath. Um, so, you know, the bottleneck of creating, or, uh, you know, getting new physical servers, racking them up, installing the software, that hid and uh, disguised other inefficiencies that were underneath there. And once you take away the provisioning bottleneck, you just see other bottlenecks instead. I guess this idea came from an experience around networking because generally when you remove a bottleneck in the network stack, all that serves to do is expose a different bottleneck in the network somewhere else. Um, paradoxically, the efficiencies we implement in one part of our operations only merely serve to reveal inefficiencies elsewhere. I mean, incidentally, this isn't an excuse to maintain the status quo. We should be always pushing uh, open and unopened doors in a ceaseless quest to improve what we do. And it, I think it helps if you imagine yourself in the data center uh, as some sort of character in the Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, questing ever to try and improve the the uh, environment. Uh, you know, if this quest idea rings with you, that's fine with me, but don't tell your senior management. They might look at you a bit strangely. So I think for me, the key to understanding the software data center is look back on the previous data, uh, de uh, decade and look at that term, the virtual data center. So far, the success of virtualization has largely been restricted to and circumscribed by compute virtualization. And the last decade was largely a narrative of taking physical servers and converting them into virtual machines. And that, I think, it was an unqualified resounding success. However, as we all begin to mature into the new world of virtual data centers, it's becoming increasingly apparent that compute virtualization isn't going to drive the same efficiencies going forward on its own. Now, that's not to say there isn't legs in the old compute virtualization model. Uh, everyone is in a different number of miles down the road, which is their journey through virtualization. And there's a surprisingly large number of folks who are only just starting 
And I think that's something our community often forgets. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing increasing cases of, you know, 60%, 70%, 80%, 90% virtual, and in some cases, 100% virtual estates. But putting that success uh, aside for one more moment, the truth is, is that many aspects of the virtual machine and the virtual world remain recently uh, and stubbornly tied to the physical world. So, you know, there's still this um, gap, if you like, um, you know, there's a very small number have got 100% virtualization and people are rubbing up against uh, barriers, roadblocks, bottlenecks, if you want to call it that. And I guess this is apparent in really three main areas, the networking, storage, and to a lesser degree, disaster recovering. Uh, I think over time, over the last you know couple of decades, we've created silos of networking, silos of storage, because essentially the technologies at the time demanded them. And that's also created uh, what I call silos of expertise. We have a network team and a storage team and yada, yada. I think, you know, that's well known. I remember when I was an instructor, I used to warn my students that the course would be about the physical world as well as the virtual. After all, it wasn't as if our server rooms were empty, resembling some sort of ghost town era from the Wild West, with nothing but tumbleweed drifting through them. And there was a reason for me saying that. Much of the course was about how the VM uh, access resource, uh, resources in the physical world. You know, Where would it be stored? How would it communicate to other VMs on the other host and to other servers and users on the wider network? How would we back it up and make it available elsewhere? If a physical server died, where would the VM live? Much of this had to be done within the context of the physical environment uh, because virtualization being the new kid on the on the block in the data center, had to engage with the physical world, being the kind of older big brother in, in the environment. If you want a good example of how tied the VM was to the physical world in, uh, in networking, uh, in the world of vSphere, we create virtual switches, either standard ones or distributed ones. Yet, despite the name, these virtual switches, and I'm using kind of inverted speech marks there, are very much tied to the physical world. You know, when you first create a virtual switch, wherever the time, one of your first administrative decisions is you have to work out which physical NICs or VM NICs to assign, how many you need for uh, your fault tolerance or, or, or load. And then once you've created the virtual switch, you then start putting port groups on that virtual switch. Um, so you have to know, you know, uh, do you have support for VLANs in, using the VLAN tagging process? Uh, and those VLANs themselves, of course, are not defined or created at the virtual switch level. They live in the physical switch. Um, paradoxically, that virtual LAN isn't really that virtual at all. It's designed at the physical layer. It's not designed in the virtual layer. Uh, some people I know when I've spoken about this say, yeah, it's like uh, the virtual switch is just a patching system. Uh, where you patch to the physical world so the VM can touch it. About the only thing that's really virtual about a virtual switch, if you want to view it this way, is the VM's relationship to it because it, you know, it just sees a virtual switch. It doesn't know really what's going on in the in the physical world. So, despite the name, a VLAN is actually quite a physical construct. It's created in the firmware of the physical switch, and even advanced features in virtual switches, such as IP hash load balancing requires 802.3 link aggregation to be enabled on the, the physical switch. And for the most part, we live in a world of subnets and IP where the VM is tied to these constructs that sort of limit its portability. 
I mean, true, I have met customers who've stretched VMware H HA clusters so they can move VMs across sites. And we have uh, prerequisite networking storage to allow that to all happen, you know, it's on the HCL. But it's fair to say there are relatively small customers compared to the customers who still use vMotion and HA within a site. So I guess that's what the VXLAN project is about, uh, all about. It's trying to uh, liberate you um, from the constraints of the physical data center whose design in physical uh, silos goes back to the early 90s and uh, the rise of client-server x86 computing. Now, if networking is not your kettle of fish for this sort of analogy, this sort of description, let's look at the storage instead. Let's say if you created a VM with three virtual disks, an OS, an application, and some sort of temple logging location, each one of these virtual disks are likely to go located on different data stores, or if you have vSphere 5, on a data store cluster. Um, a great deal of this uh, complexity comes from very simple best practices. You know, you look at what RAID level you should be using for the learn of the volume, how many spindles should be backing each LUM and volume for the workload, and the old chestnut, how many VMs can you place on a single LUN or a single data store? Even this little tale disguises the other storage concerns like vMotion and HA and DRS and FT that all require shared storage with the same data store to be presented to the same host. You know, woe betide any storage admin who doesn't present the, the number of LUNs and volumes to the right host or accidentally depresents them. So if you like, what I'm trying to do is flag up the physical aspect of the way we handle storage even to this day. Of course, this new complexity produced massive efficiency. That was a great opportunity for, for me and you know a lot of us who adopted virtualization. Um, you know, in the early days, the, the adopters of virtualization benefited massively career-wise from understanding the complexity of all these dependence and requirements needed to get all your ducks in the row to make the, the technology work. And we could leave what we have, the virtual data center, as it is, and leave the state of play, you know, unchanged and wait until we reach 100% virtualization, fold our hands and then proclaim our work is done. But I think we'd be dead wrong. And here's why. It's precisely this over-dependency on the physical world that's actually prevented virtualization from hitting 100%. All of us have rubbed up against limitations and restrictions at the network and the storage layer, whether they be technical limit limitations, restrictions, or increasingly for some political uh, limitations and restrictions. Um, so anyway, that's the kind of uh, state of play. So moving on, last year we saw the introduction by VMware of the Monster VM, and this year we're introducing what I'm calling the Mega Beast VM. <laughs> uh, the barrier to adopting ever greater levels of virtualization really isn't the VM anymore. Uh, it was. I mean, do you remember back in the ESX2 days when the maximum size VM you could have was just two vCPUs and three gig of RAM? The barriers to virtualization in cloud computing don't really reside in the virtual machine anymore because, you know, it's it's you know, grown to massive in, in terms of its size. Where the barriers to virtualization in cloud computing really reside are elsewhere, in the storage and the network layer. 
So the solution to this challenge is not to stop at the compute layer, but to try and extend virtualization into the other resources to the VM. So it becomes a first class entity in the data center. We've talked for many years about virtual appliances, and I guess to some degree, the software defined data center is a more rounded way of talking about these embryonic ideas. So if you look at the new components to VC, you can begin to see uh, clearly the term is a quick way to talk about the other components that we're starting to virtualize. So at the network layer, we're talking about things like vShield, Edge, Endpoint, and App. And at the storage layer, we're talking about things like the VSA and the vSAN. The difference you'll find is uh, with VMware, VMware is while we have these offerings in uh, these areas, often our competitors don't, uh, they're still leveraging moribund technologies located in the operating system layer that customers have never really been satisfied with and as a consequence of being forced to blend solutions from third parties. The important thing is that there wasn't a choice. It was something that was foisted upon them. And now here's where I think VMware is playing things smart. The APIs that allow such technologies as vShield to, offer, offer to operate don't lock out of our partners. So if you're looking to build a vCloud Director Cloud on top of vSphere 5.1 and you want to use other vendors such as F5's Big IP, then you're free to do so. The choice is yours. It, it's not created by a, a good enough component that forces you your hand to put your pocket in, into your wallet to pay for something that's missing. So this software-defined data center isn't some sort of 2001 space oddity monolith. It, it's much more modular than that. Uh, software is like that. It, it shouldn't be like hardware, implacable or inflexible. Uh, the truth is, is that the VM isn't naked, as some people have put it. It's surrounded by all these other network services, VLANs, firewalls, load balancers, and security services like IDS. And it's these things that make the virtual machine more expensive and takes makes it longer to, you know, provision that VM because it's not just cloning the VM and powering it on, which is what we have at the moment. There's all these other surrounding um, features and requirements that it needs. And, and that's what I think the software defined data center is trying to provide. It's trying to wrap around that virtual machine, all the various services and components it needs to be a true application that people will use. So that, that's the kind of big picture stuff. I want to sort of delve into like some examples of this um, kind of more recent experience. Um, and I, I guess this is a very personal thing, so you'll, you'll have to run with me on this one. F for me, the storage array and its management have been slowly disappearing over the last four or five years. Um, and here's why. Firstly, I was one of the early adopters of virtual storage appliances. Um, back in, I think, 2006 or 2007, I was lucky enough to be given NFR licenses for what was then called Left Hand's iSCSI VSA or Virtual Storage Appliance. And I actually used this to actually write my very first Site Recovery Manager book. Um, basically what happened is I was at a, a conference, I think it was the European uh, VMworld, got chatting to the pro product manager for SRM who happened to be a chap called Mornay van der Vold, who then took me down to the Solutions Exchange introduced me to a guy called Adam Carter, who was at the time the product manager for Left Hand, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. Um, here's how significant that was. At the time, my storage array, get this, 
was a Sun Storage uh, fiber channel sand that I'd actually bought off one of VMware's employees, now works at Oracle, a chap called Richard Garsagan. I actually went down to Frimley in the UK to do a training course, and at the end of the week, I gave Richard a couple hundred quid, and we lumped the, the storage array into the back of my car, and I drove it home, together with the cables and the cards, by the way. I mean, it's a very old, antiquated system, but it worked. How old and antiquated? Well, to be honest with you, it was just a J-Bod. It was just a, a storage array with some disks, each 32 gig in size, by the way. No RAID levels, uh, no redundancy, just a, a box of storage, which happened to be accessible by fiber channel. Um, there was certainly no replication. So if you like, the storage had no intelligence <laughs> whatsoever. No disrespect to some storage arrays. It was a you know an array that was probably around in the late 90s. But what I did is I put on top of that a virtual appliance, two of them in fact, and had replication going on with those within, I would say about an hour or so of setting it up. It took me a while to get my head around the way the VSA worked following the sort of documentation, but that's what I did. I must admit at the time, I didn't think, you know, this is the future of storage, but I'm wondering whether that's where we might be going. The other reason that uh, the kind of storage array and the management piece of it has started to disappear is the other thing I've been using for a long time, a big devotee and, and a promoter of, are these uh, virtual center uh, snap-ins into uh, the system that come from the storage vendors. Uh, I've used three in my time. I've used Dell's integration tools for VMware edition, often abbreviated to DIPVE. I've used EMC's virtual storage integrator, often abbreviated to the VSI, and I've used NetApp's virtual storage console, often abbreviated to the VSE. Now, these um, plugins to Virtual Center do very similar tasks uh, to each other, such as provisioning new LUNs and volumes, cloning virtual machines for virtual desktops, and then to a greater or lesser degree, managing the storage vendor's snapshot technology so you can mount a snapshot and do a quick restore of virtual machines. Now, the interesting thing about these plugins is that the more you use them, the more you find yourself thinking, uh, the more you find yourself not logging into the array and using their management tools. And storage starts to become merely just another resource that you allocate. I mean, the center of my world is, is virtual center currently. Uh, and if I could have one less one window opening to manage my lab and with fewer clicks to, to complete the task, I'm going to use that every time. And I can see this happening more and more as I begin my first tentative steps into the cloud. Those uh, physical resources will become less and less relevant to me, less and less physical to me. And for me, that's very much like compute virtualization. You know, in the early days, like my students, I was very worried about on, on which ESX host my VM was running, you know, you know had to know what box it was running on. But within a few sh short weeks or months, I began to care really less and less. And now I don't even think of it at all. You know, In fact, when students used to ask me, I used to think it was somewhat quaint and er esoteric that they would actually care where the VM resides. Now, don't get me wrong. In some cases, for licensing reasons, what sockets the VM is exposed to is very important. <clears throat> the less said about Oracle in recent videos, uh, the better, I think. So, and the other area of the software uh, data center that resides in a field that's very close to my uh, to my uh, heart is disaster recovery. 
Um, it recently released uh, received a massive uplift in uh, 5.0, which you know SRM, uh, which introduced automated failback and vSphere reclamation and uh, replication. Sorry, and for me, vSphere replication is uh, a very good illustration of this vision of the software data center. Um, up until its introduction, customers who wanted virtual DR needed to have matching arrays at both sites, with the smallest unit of replication being the LUN or the volume. And that introduced a whole set of costs and complexities. Um, you know, I have to speak to the storage team to get the replication set up. I have to make sure I have matching arrays. I have to uh, liaise with them to discuss what the RPO is. I have to make sure the VMs are in the right LUNs for those different RPOs. You know, it goes on and on and on. And another aspect of that, if you wanted to talk about it, is the site recovery adapter that makes SRM works needs rights to the array, a password and a username. Ooh, that's politics, isn't it? Now, with vSphere replication, you can just replicate what you need, the VM and nothing else. Uh, it's VM aware, if you forgive the pun. That's what I used to say as a student. And at a single stroke, it solves a problem and also introduces new possibilities because the replication isn't tied down to the storage controller and the firmware of the array. Uh, and you can see the fruits of this has already been shown very quickly in the lifetime of vSphere 5's release. So now replication is available as part of vSphere without needing to purchase SRM. And vSphere replication now supports automated failback um, in the same way as it did for array-based replication. Uh, vSphere replication is just software. There's a virtual appliance you download, you configure it, and off you go. It's precisely the kind of flexibility that a software data center is aiming at delivering. Now, of course, there'll be some that will say that this vision of the software data center is over-ambitious, um, and just a marketing term. And I've got a couple of things to say about that. Um, I'm hoping this particular podcast on this particular blog post gives you an idea that there are some very concrete examples where the software defined data center is already starting to show its its hand and how it's not just vmware but it's you know other vendors who are getting into this as well i guess if there is any danger about the term it is that there'll be a little bit of me me tooism you know once you define a term and it starts to get traction in the marketplace you'll have loads of other people saying well oh, we do software defined data center too a bit like what happened with cloud so, uh, sadly that's an inevitable aspect of the way our industry works you know the way the marketing and the pr people in other companies you know get their machine working and try and cannibalize your own sort of intellectual ip or your own terms but I, what I want to really speak about is whether this uh, software-defined uh, data center concept is over-ambitious. Uh, first thing I would say is that's the point of a vision, <laughs> ambition. I've often likened the cloud to being a bit like a mission to the moon. And you can say, if you like, the software data center is part of that greater mission. It took a grand vision to harness and focus the brain power and the hard work of engineers to that single goal of landing people on the moon and getting them back again. If your vision is an ambition that is easy to achieve, it probably isn't much of a vision uh, because it's just too accessible. Secondly, we've been here before. 
There were naysayers who said virtualization would be a tactical technology that wouldn't go mainstream and would remain corralled in just to running legacy OSs and applications such as Windows NT or just in the dev test world. In fact, I remember having discussions with friends of mine who I used to work with in the 90s and then later on in the next decade, I was a VMware guy and they were working for Microsoft. And these people said, ah, oh, you know, Mike, this whole virtualization thing, it'll just be a way of running legacy OSs like Windows NT. These people were proved wrong, <laughs> massively wrong. The truth is, is that IT and businesses um, loved virtualization so much, they could not wait to use it in production. And the last couple of years have been about consolidating the position of virtualization in the mainstream as a strategic technology in the data center. We've gone from questioning whether T1 applications should reside in a VM towards adopting virtualization first policies. Given how conservative the world of the data center and infrastructure can be, that's a terrific amount of change in what is actually a very short period of time. Pretty much like the Wright brothers inventing flight powered, you know, power flight one day and the jet engine arriving the next. Finally, what, despite what some media pundits say, it doesn't put VMware on a collision course with its partners like Cisco and EMC. It's precisely those partners that will help make it, this vision a reality. Um, for example, the VXLAN project has stakeholders across many, many different businesses. And I think it's very likely that in the next year, you'll find VXLAN-enabled switches and VXLAN-enabled uh, network cards. So, you know, uh, the industry is moving very, very rapidly and, you know, we're all uh, driving to keep up with it. Anyway, that's about it for this little polemic. Uh, my next couple of blog posts are going to be more down in the weeds, talking about what's new in vSphere 5.1 in the cloud suite. I'm not sure whether those particular blog posts will naturally translate into an audio-based format like this one. Um, so it won't be a regular thing. Every blog post gets an audio treatment. I'll have to look at each blog post and, and work out whether it, it works. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. And uh, what I'll do is I'll give a tiny URL in the description of this uh, podcast. So if you actually want to read the blog post, just follow that tiny URL. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.